0: Two,
1: three. Hey, I'm Gary David.
0: And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds.
1: If you came by and you're welcome to come by, and looked around my office, you would probably not be surprised to find out that interior design is a big weakness of mine. I really don't know what colors go with what motifs, what furniture matters outside of just pure comfort, how one tries to create flow in space, and anything else that interior designers may consider when going about creating the environments that we regularly inhabit, whether they be in our homes, or in our offices, or even the well-spoken of third place that people try to escape to. It turns out that there is much more to interior design and creating environmental experiences than one might assume, depending upon what you actually assume about interior design and environmental spaces. For instance, the carbon footprint cost of interior design can be really high. In interior spaces of offices can be primary contributors or culprits, as the case may be, toward this carbon footprint. Thus, we might miss the environmental costs of our environments. And as it turns out, that creating change in how we think about our interior spaces and consume products that we gear towards those spaces is a lot more difficult than actually changing the furniture or our wall hangings. Not surprisingly, for those of us who study people, change is hard and creating a sense of urgency around that change can be even more difficult.
0: And making it aesthetically pleasing or ergonomic adds to the complexity of of these issues, right? Um, Now you got me thinking about ergonomic change. Um, But to help us address these issues, we are excited to have in the Experience Design Studios today, John Strassner. And John is the Chief Sustainability Officer for And he comes to this job after a long, long time of trying to raise awareness and behavioral change around environmental sustainability and the climate. So a really kind of interesting entree into the world of interior design. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring how he approaches his role of creating awareness to create more environmentally sustainable designs. So again, not just better to look at with nice materials, but then also all these other areas thinking about the uh, lived environment that they come in as well. So we'll be discussing one of these interesting challenge points, which is how do you strike a balance between not overwhelming people with information against you know failing to act quickly enough in the face of changing climate or environmental you know needs, resource extraction, things like that, while also getting enough people on board to scale a kind of impact that will make a difference and introducing enough friction into the stories that we tell and processes that we are producing with to get people to actually do something. So it's tricky, but what John shares with us is right in line with this ethnographer's kind of point of view that you need to take a holistic view. So we're excited to bring this episode to you today, and we cannot wait to dive in. So let's get to it.
1: Making shit happen. Well, we're all about making shit happen. And I just hit record just so we can uh, capture the magic because we already started making magic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, what about, you know, I was, I was talking with my students yesterday, or I was talking, I don't know if they were listening. When you're talking to students that they're not listening, does that constitute talking? Talking at them. I was talking at my (laughs) students. Talking at them. Talking at them. And I was talking about innovation and we were talking about, you can outpace people's appetite for innovation and have great ideas that don't go anywhere because people aren't ready for them yet. And thinking about changing paradigms and significantly altering experiences. And so, you know, when you're talking about breaking dishes and getting shit done, are those two things mutually exclusive? Because if if I'm breaking all my dishes, I can't have anything to eat on. I can't have dinner.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it comes back to the adage that you have to have friction to achieve change and, and friction, you know, is, is a good thing, although it often creates conflict and a lot of us don't like conflict, but, but that's how you, that's how you make change and, you know, change isn't easy or enjoyable. But I think what's important is if you're going to break dishes or you're going to create friction that it's, it's producing something, if you're just going to create friction or break dishes for the sake of breaking dishes, then I, I wouldn't recommend it. It would, that would be an expensive way to express yourself
0: <laughs> you know unless you have some very strange art art proclivity i guess but i think that that's a really inter- early interesting point too so i guess thinking about that too in in your work and and or even in the podcast breaks and dishes you know what are is is there, when you think about this are, is there kind of a particularly productive form of friction that you've seen in different kinds of cases or studies or working with clients that uh, is is more generative of new ideas or producing something versus others, or do you find it that it's really kind of context dependent, where it's like maybe a differential set of ideas between two different people, or it's material constraints versus uh, grand ambition? You know, do you see these these kinds of frictions? Any any that have stood out to you uh, over your your kind of uh, career in terms of one seems to get more done, one kind of friction gets seems to get more done than than other forms. It's a big question. I-
2: yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think in our industry, they're they're in the in the conversation that that we're in, which is really climate change and and climate impact. Uh, the majority of the friction really is in just addressing status quo, and mm. you know, can you question the way things have always been done, and can you get because when you do that, a lot of times there has to be a cultural shift, right? Or a cultural adaptation. Mm-hmm. And so what we find in this conversation around climate change is, you know, you may have an organization that's saying, uh, you know, we, we have to take control of our supply chain and you, you are going to have to make the effort to remove toxins. From the product that you're manufacturing. And that means you're going to have to reevaluate your supplier relationships and you're probably going to have to fire some suppliers and find mm. new suppliers. And that's going to more than likely cost you money and be inconvenient and probably be invisible in the product that mm. you're manufacturing. But mm. you need to do it because it's the right thing to do. And so there's friction there, you know, there's friction in that push for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think when we look really, at, I... yeah, when we look at, when we look at sustainability under the, under the lens of manufacturing, you know, we're really trying to evolve the manufacturing process to, to do everything from lowering operational emissions to uh, impacting embodied carbon. So there's a lot that we're expecting manufacturing to do these days
0: that's it's, it's really interesting point too because oftentimes in the that that middle space of manufacturing between like pure raw materials and and then the consumer side you know you're kind of in this in this b2b space um and it's interesting too because it, it's i guess the money I'm, I'm 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 teasing an idea out of what you said there. thinking about this that is is it oftentimes that if the if the end consumer doesn't see the shift, then it makes it harder for the business sometimes to feel like they're justifying the, the change itself, like kind of doing the right thing versus being seen doing the right thing? Is there ever this kind of tension too in the B2B oh, versus yeah. B2C arena?
2: Yeah, man. I think all the time. I mean, we all know the term greenwashing. Mm. And so... Yeah. There's a there's that delicate balance. I feel like I use the word balance way too often, but there's it's almost like a cop-out <laughs> word. Like, ah, there's a balance here somewhere. I don't know what it is. Mm. But there, there's a balance between, you know, you're doing the right thing, you want to market and socialize and promote that you're doing the right thing, but you don't want people to think that you're doing the right thing just so you can market it and promote it and socialize it. But, you know, you have right. to share what you're doing, you know? And I think that's when you, when you talk about <clears throat> one of the biggest challenges that we have in this conversation is when you ask a business, uh, to make change like that, you know, they almost need space to educate their customers, educate their customer base. And a lot of manufacturers don't, they just don't have that opportunity. You know, it, it's If it's going to go on a shelf somewhere, you're relying on a label to, to tell your narrative or you're hoping mm-hmm. that a visit to your website will tell your narrative. And, you know, the likelihood of that is is pretty slim.
1: Yesterday, also in a different class, um, this shows you how interesting my classes are. We were talking <laughs> about transgender yeah, athletes. Falling oh.
2: asleep, what's the next thing? <laughs> no, this is great. We were,
1: we, were, we were approaching light topics like transgender athletes and sports equity. I teach a sociology a sports oh. class. And one of the things we got into a conversation around was Bud Light and the um, limited run cans or bottles or whatever it was that they produced with, uh, I always forget her last name, Dylan. I feel bad for getting her last name. I'll look it up. But I don't know if you saw on the news that Bud Light created a run of Mulvaney, Dylan Mulvaney they created a, a run of bottles with her image on it to celebrate her 365th day of transition. And the bottles were sent to her. And this caused an uproar among certain people who demonstrate or claim to have an affinity with Bud Light, which is perhaps the most shocking part of the story that there are people who have an affinity for Bud Light, but setting that aside, <laughs> um, no offense to Bud Light. Bud Light, if you want to sponsor us, give me a call. But I asked my students, do you want customers that are intolerant? Do you want to be the brand associated with customers that are intolerant? And they just kind of, you know, they thought about it. And I, I you know it's interesting in your position of the associate, you know, do you want members that aren't committed to sustainability? I mean, I know you're not in a position to sit there and say you're in and you're not, but I you know, given your job as chief sustainability officer, it must create some friction in yourself about, you know, are our members really truly committed? Are they not? And do if if a company or a member wasn't, are do we want them to be part of our organization?
2: Yeah, I, I, and that's a great question and i would i would tell you that the association would respond with grace and empathy and we want membership in the association to be accessible and inclusive and honestly sustainability is it, it is not an easy thing to take on and we want our members to know that and we want our members to know that we don't have all the answers. We're not an association that is expert in the field of sustainability, but we recognize that it's a journey and we want all of our members to feel comfortable joining us on the journey where we're all going to figure it out together. Sustainability, you know, through the everybody Has a different experience with sustainability, right? We have members that are fellows who have been leading the charge on sustainability for many, many years and will only, will only design through a a lens of sustainability. And we have members that have never done anything yet around sustainability. So we don't want to overwhelm anybody we don't want to scare anybody away we want to say hey listen we get it if if you've never practiced sustainability and you've built a practice with your own credibility and your own skill set right it's asking a lot for a member to say okay i'm going to start practicing in a whole different way now even though i don't know everything about it and i'm going to put my credibility on the line and probably do something I'm, you know, as adults, we're terrified of doing things we're not good at. <laughs> True. So mm-hmm. I'm taking a long time to answer your question. But um, for us, we want everybody to at least start. And it could be simple. It could be oh so simple, right? Choose something that you think you're you're good at, that you're comfortable doing, and just focus on that for a little bit and see if that doesn't take you deeper into the conversation and give you an opportunity to practice uh, a a little bit more sustainable uh, practice. It's a
1: fascinating thing because in in the idea of social change and social movements, there are schools of thought. One would be a more moderate approach, which could be, and this could be anything, right? Transgender people, race, relations, you know, sustainability, whatever, that a moderate stepwise approach can be a good thing because it gets people comfortable with that change and builds momentum to achieving a larger scale change. And then another a viewpoint might be, um, we don't have time for this, right? We need to move. And I, I think about this in a, in a scope of a different thing. I was, you know, listening to a radio show and the, the, the host was talking about letters from a Birmingham jail, and by Martin Luther King Jr. And for folks who aren't familiar with it, it was written by Martin Luther King Jr. while he was in solitary confinement to clergymen, clergy leaders in the Birmingham community about why we need to do this now and why P can't wait. That it needs to be what might be perceived as radical because the stakes are too high. And so rather than it being an either or, I mean, we can do both, but especially around sustainability and climate change, how do, how do you approach it, given your background as a climate activist, of being patient versus sounding an alarm, given the dire situation many have said we're in?
2: Yeah, and it's a movement, and every movement is going to have leaders and followers. And I think that um, if we – I've heard this. I've, I've seen it written. But if we fail, it won't be because we failed to act. It'll be because we failed to act quickly. So I, I have that urgency, but we have to understand that not everybody can manage that urgency. And so that'll work on some people, right? We don't have time. We don't have time. Stop doing what you're doing. Make some changes. Do it tomorrow. Cause you know what? We don't have time. That'll work with some people, but you'll also alienate. You'll isolate A lot of people, because a lot of people will get overwhelmed by that, and herein lies that friction we were talking about earlier, right? There's there's good friction, and it's okay to make some people uncomfortable, but at the same time, you want to bring everybody along, and so that's where that's where we that's where we really are. There is an urgency to the situation. And I personally feel that tension and I want to see things change right away. And, um, you know, I would love it if you could just go out there and say, look what the IPCC said, you know, this is a dire, dire situation. Stop what you're doing, change it tomorrow and let's fix it. But that, that doesn't work. People are overwhelmed by this problem. People are overwhelmed by this situation. I think that um, we listen to um, scientists and we listen to engineers and we listen to environmentalists. And the challenge with the movement is the people that are doing so much of the talking, what they're doing is they're sharing their research. They're researchers and scientists. They're not necessarily leaders of a movement. They're not necessarily going to be able to bring people along like you you don't always relate to those folks and i think what what i really want to do is i really want to get everybody comfortable talking about climate change and i don't think we should i i think we have in the past sat back and said, okay, well, thank God, we got scientists and engineers. And for a while there, we thought we had corporations who were committed to doing what needed to be done. So let's let them do their job and stay out of the way. And we're kind of past that point.
0: Hmm. And so, I mean, and it's funny, because, you know, you mentioned before, too, that there, like, balance is the word that gets that's said a lot. And it's like, does that feel like the uh, a comfortable or uncomfortable word depending on, on what we're trying to do with it. But I think that, that there is this interesting tension right between like time as you note, urgency is an element that's part of this equation too, that we do have to have to consider um whether it is something like resource extraction or, you know, the rising uh, temperatures or ice cap melting, right? Or or any of these different elements or even just like how much land will be left in Miami in, in 70 years. Um, you know, and so that there is these interesting interesting ideas of like, how do we, how do we balance in this case, to, to use the B word again, like balance the, and on a level, I think one of the challenges that we face is, is a lot of like quarterly thinking in corporations. And then with these sort of long-term issues, and like, it's interesting that when we would start to see some kind of shift to your point, when we, it seemed more like corporations were, were a bit more on board was, was when we started to see the emergence of talking about ROI for climate and like that you're de-risking, uh, you know, either your investments for the future or whatever it is. And so it's interesting to think about the language that we're using, the narrative that we're telling um, to different constituencies. And so in this case, thinking in, in a business context, um, you know, designing or thinking about the experience or the narrative that we're we're sharing with with businesses or corporations of how do we both build that sense of urgency, but then also uh, you know, whether it is talking about profitability or ROI or de-risking, whatever it is. I don't know. So I'm curious your thoughts on this level, like, you know, where have we seen successes or big challenges in that space of how do we bring the sense of urgency, but then also have it register that it's useful for businesses? I know that sounds dumb to ask that question, right? But um it's something that we have to convince a lot of organizations of, I think. So so how is that kind of shaped up in, in your world?
2: You or know, it's still we, shaping? It, yeah, it it well, you know, this conversation is so fluid um and mm-hmm. so evolving. Uh, you know, one minute uh you're talking about one thing and then and then you're shifting very quickly. And I think I had a, uh, I have a friend of mine who's executive vice president of sustainability for Aspen Ski Company. His name is Auden Schendler. I've known Auden for quite a while. Um, I had him on one of my one of my earlier episodes, and he really introduced me to the concept of corporate complicity. And what he said hmm. was, you know, you didn't you didn't wake up this morning with the intent to damage the environment. None of us want to damage the earth. Uh, you didn't, you know, you didn't decide you were going to pour milk on your cereal from a plastic jug that was petroleum-based and fossil fuel-based. Mm-hmm. You didn't get into a vehicle that was going to be emitting massive amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. You didn't decide that's what you wanted to drive. You just didn't have the choice. And so, you know, there is a time when we have to hold corporations accountable for doing more and doing better. And there's been a history in this country of blaming the people. And it started with hmm. the um, keep America clean um, program back in the seventies, which I don't know if you guys remember or not, but there was that commercial of the, of the Indian oh, yeah. rowing a canoe, yeah. Classic. right? And, you know, he gets out of the canoe and he steps on some garbage, mm-hmm. you know, and he looks at it and, and it's cultural appropriation, uh, to the, to the, to the maximum. Right. And he gets, and he's in a headdress. I mean, we know this commercial, yeah, yeah. he gets out and he walks mm-hmm. over to the side of the highway and somebody chucks a, a bag of garbage out, out their car window and it lands mm-hmm. on his feet. And then of course they zoom in on this Indian, you know, and he's got a tear mm-hmm. rolling down his cheek the- and, It's basically saying your littering, your decision to throw your litter away is what's killing the planet. Now, a couple of things that have come to light from that commercial. The first is that the Native American in that commercial is an Italian-American actor who got into a lot Mm. of trouble uh, for cultural appropriation because he tried to convince everybody that he was a native American and his chief was, his name was chief iron eyes. And and he, he was in a Mm. lot of Western movies during that time period. That was his niche. Um, Mm. but the, the sponsors of that, of that program were some of the biggest polluters in our country. Mm. It was, it was like, um, I think Coca-Cola and, uh, uh, Exxon. I mean, I can't remember the exact, but if you, if you look into this particular, um, commercial movement, um, the sponsors to it were just, were, the, they were the ones that were actually the problem, but they were trying to project what they were doing wrong onto, onto us. And so oh. Auden's like, mm. stop taking the blame. Start pushing back. And so I think, uh, we've reached a point now where, you know when i first started to to figure out sustainability i really was was trying to, i was trying to figure out what are the problems okay so we have this massive amount of plastic that's pouring into our oceans and killing marine life okay that's that's a problem i'm going to focus on that and then i then i would learn about the next problem and 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 find out about that and I, for me it was a learning process and now my process has sort of evolved to activism right um how do we actually how how do we refine and pinpoint our efforts in ways that are going to make impact and i think that's what people need because it's it's very overwhelming otherwise you know Mm-hmm. I really went off on a tangent there, Adam. I don't even know anymore if I answered your question. <laughs> oh,
0: no, that, that was great. That was great. Um, I mean, it's funny because even the, your your first answer to the question was this is a very fluid conversation, which is about sustainability, but also this one too. So it's great. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I, no. want, I want to start talking about Italian American actors. I mean, that, that's where that's where yeah. I had went.
2: Chief Iron Eyes, See, man. They, Look they, him Chief up. Chief Eyes. Yeah, he, he was a troublemaker, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I do. I it's, yeah, I do remember that commercial. And it's it, yeah, and I, it is fascinating. It makes all the sense in the world propaganda piece, right? Yeah, absolutely. It it starts to shift the blame. I mean, you know, I might think Americans would be uh, more remorseful about the way Native Americans were treated, period. But okay, we can start with the trash. I mean, it also kind of diverts Mm -hmm. attention. Like, if we only didn't litter, the Native American people would be so much better off. I'm like, no, I think we got to start further back than that and think about the whole reservation system. Yeah. Um, so there's a mm-hmm. lot to unpack there as a cultural artifact, which I definitely need to use in one of my one of my courses to explore. We we have talked about this notion of science communication in the age of a pandemic, and I think it's kind of similar, right? Like, how do you get people to do things that are better not only for themselves but for everybody? And so wearing a mask, yeah. do you do it to protect yourself or to protect? Others, getting vaccinated, is about protecting yourself or protecting others? Is it about protecting your children? You know, what's the cell? What's the thing that's going to break through and resonate so that it does change behavior? And it seems like with sustainability, it's very similar, especially because, you know, you know, we're talking about interior design in some ways as well. I just want my place to look nice, right? How do I make my mm-hmm. place look nice? I'm not, you know, do I think about when I go to a Wayfair or forever what am i you know what am i buying what's the carbon footprint of it what kind of materials were built in so are is there work being done to make it easier to make those decisions from an informed perspective and how might we design environments whether they are customer experience environments or employee experience environments who am i working for what's their track record how committed yeah. are they really to it and not just greenwashing is work being done to build that into the information ecosystem so that people can make better decisions.
2: Yeah, that's a great question and designers are in a very very challenging position with this conversation because a, a designer, you know, it's 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 their vision for that space. They have a vision for that space, but they are delivering product to a customer right and i think it, when we look at the design industry the commercial interior designers uh, are are really more progressive around the field of sustainability than the residential designers are and yeah. a, a big reason for that is that commercial clients are are working with designers to create public spaces that really do have to be safe and, and regenerative and uh, healthy, right? And have to have wellness in mind. Uh, these spaces are, are meant to help companies uh, r- retain and attract talent. Um, so that's a different space than our home. It's very public. And so if I'm Apple, Right. I can't build a commercial office building and have nobody realize that that's Apple. So everything I put into that public space is a reflection on my brand. Mm -hmm. But but I can be Tim Cook and go home at the end of the day after after talking about the Apple brand all day long and I can go home and really live a quite anonymous lifestyle. People don't really know how I'm behaving and, and residential designers kind of struggle because a residential designer can say, I, I want to be as sustainable as possible. I want to make all the best decisions, but I have a client that just doesn't care. Right. And they, they like what they like and they know what they like. And so our, and herein comes that friction again, there's an opportunity, there's a learning moment. Will that designer have the opportunity to teach their client Right? Will the client be open-minded enough to want to learn from that designer? and and it's a challenging role for the designer to be in today. And um, they can, you know you and you can approach it a number of different ways, but you can you listen, you can you can sit down with a client and say, hey, listen, I'm not asking you to give up on all your favorite brands and just work with me on these brands that we know, have a sustainable narrative. Let's, let's do a couple of things here. You like antiques? Let's try to put some antiques into your home, okay? You have some things that have sentimental value. Let's try to repurpose some things that we put into this home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's ways of, of weaving a sustainability conversation into the work you do for a client without shocking them. Right. And there's so many misconceptions out there now from people that really don't know a lot about it. So it's a learning process. And as an association, what we want to be able to do is, can we provide our members and, and quite frankly, non-members who who want to be who we want to attract to asid? can we provide them with the infrastructure and the foundation? To guide them through conversations like this, and so, Garrett, answer your question. Yes, there are tools out there now that designers can use to help them make better material decisions. Right. So, um, you can get on the you can get on the internet, and there's a a group out there called Mindful Materials that will help you identify sustainable product. Um, there's a there's a, there's a company out there called Ecomedies, which um, we have a portal from our website that will take you to Ecomedies and Ecomedies will allow you to uh, do a data search. You can, you can type in conference room table and Ecomedies will list out for you all the conference room tables that have green certifications of one sort or another, right? So you can work with a client and say, hey, listen, let's try our best. To make this space as impactful as possible, right? And you can start to specify product by a particular certification if you want, which is which is a really nice tool um, to be able to utilize. So we're trying to to get our members comfortable with that conversation and we're trying to equip them so that they can take a customer through that process. So you're
1: saying it's a balancing act.
2: <laughs> it's, a, it's a balance man <laughs> this is a balance so we need to have Whoa. a balance
1: you have balanced yeah. conversation
2: yeah there's a delicate balance <laughs> everyone
1: drink every <laughs> time if you're listening to this podcast every yeah. time we say balance <laughs> drink but make sure you're at home someone else is driving you because i think it's going to get messy pretty quickly
2: i know it mm-hmm. i know it
1: <laughs>
0: that's that's interesting too so it's and i i appreciate it Thinking through that distinction between commercial clients and residential, and, and designers, and that challenge because it even it even seems like in this case, like mindful materials or Ecomedies, uh are are probably poised towards. I mean, I don't know many people have conference tables in their in their home, but like they're they're poised towards commercial clients. But that's an interesting uh I don't know piece because I'm I'm reflecting on this. So I, I live you know Gary and I both live in around Boston, and you know one of the the big things anytime you see any new set of construction in a neighborhood. It's usually luxury apartments is what you see. It's not affordable housing. It's not just another house. Uh, and this is always interesting to me because those are like the commercial version of residential buildings in my, in my, you know, limited right. understanding of these two spaces. And so like, that's, that's an interesting like middle ground, I guess, you know I mean? Granted, there's, there's like going to be a price point and like, obviously who can afford them, but uh, I wonder about that too. Like these kind of commercially oriented residential spaces, do you see, do you work with clients like that, I guess, or is there like some kind of, shift that could take place in that arena as well?
2: So, you know, there, when you look at it from a, and I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, Adam. So if I'm not interrupt me, but when we look at, when we look at commercial design and residential design, there's a huge overlap now because obviously commercial Mm, space, we want it to feel, comfortable we want it to feel warm we want to bring aspects of home into work so that employees can feel uh, comfortable and they want to be there all day long you know uh, so you see hmm. a lot of um, there's a lot of redundancy between residential pallets and residential uh, finishes with commercial pallets and commercial finishes they look I mean you can walk into a uh, an office um, waiting area, and it could look very much like your family room back home you know so you mm. you get a lot of that i think if we're talking about multifamily residential design you know the is there a sustainable advantage to that is that what you're asking cuz there is right i mean you're you've mm. got it's clearly uh if you're living in a multi-unit apartment complex your your carbon footprint is a lot smaller than if you know you and your partner lived in a 2500 square foot home that you had to heat mm. and cool and all that stuff so you know there's definitely yeah. an advantage to that
0: That's interesting though yeah cuz even I mean you, you you did you did answer my question cuz I was thinking about like seeing that there is such an overlap oftentimes between new construction uh, and and multifamily homes that and office spaces that resemble each other in terms of interior spaces. So it is interesting to even think about that. You're right, where a a, a commercial building like an Apple campus has to has to ooze Apple, but a an apartment complex might, you know, you know. But I, I, I don't know of an apartment complex. that think of it, oh, that's that's you know, brand X's apartment complex. You know, yeah, um, yeah.
2: Well, mixed designers use. might it's see called, it differently, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that sort of design yeah. is mixed use, right? So ideally, mm-hmm. you know, you've got retail. On that ground floor, um, right, and then and then you've got workspace above that, and then the the upper floors could be residential. so mm. that that's what a lot of designers try to accomplish with with mixed use buildings, right? And you guys have probably heard of the 15 minute city, right? So that's where mm. you know, you literally everything you need is within a 15 minute radius of you. Right. So there's, there's that, that, that sort of what you can accomplish with that mixed use retail setting.
0: That, that actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I was actually reading about that the other day um, for the first time, the 15 minute city model. And that's seems like a really interesting experiment that we're seeing a number of cities and areas doing rather the well. There's a number of them in Canada, I think right now as well, um, in, it's an interesting model because some of them, I, I guess, in, in from what you've seen, are some cities are already set up like that, and they're just trying to experiment by putting in more pedestrian lanes, for example, versus driving. Or are there other other city areas trying to do net new fifteen minute city setups?
2: Yeah.
0: Have you seen and kind I of like no, where the, like other more mature models versus less less mature, I guess? I, I'm not sure to, I, I am, I how I how am no
2: urban planner, so I cannot profess any <laughs> level of expertise in this topic, but it's fascinating. And, and I I did read an article, um, a ways back, uh, about, and I, and I think that it was kind of weird, you know, during the pandemic and everybody was leaving the city, right. And all the, the Mm -hmm. burbs were filling up. They were actually, um, they were actually taking, uh, suburban landscapes and reconfiguring them, into like the small, sort of a small little city grid, right? Where if you think about, you know, you're driving on Main Street and the typical suburb, you've got a plaza on your right and a plaza on your left. And, you know, there's the Panera, there's the Chipotle, there's the Staples, and then over here is the Home Depot, and right? So yeah. what they were doing was instead of having just that Main Street, they were bringing cross streets in, so that you could, you know, Mm. you had a grid. It was kind of a really cool concept. And it was because they had all these people leaving the city, moving out to the burbs, you know? And so they wanted to be able to give them the the walkability out there in the suburbs that they had when they lived in the city. So, I mean, I think it's one of those conversations that is ongoing. People are always trying to figure that out and experiment with it, you know? even, Even if you look at Europe where... Um, pedestrians and cars get along so much better than they do here mm. it's there was a there was a concept where I think it was like a Swedish concept where they removed the curb, mm. so there that was no distinct sidewalk versus road. and when they mm. did that, they found that cars drove a lot slower, and pedestrians were a lot more careful because huh. they knew that they were coexisting right.
0: Hmm. that's interesting. That is interesting yeah
1: i uh I have an idea this might be a dumb idea. can I share my idea?
2: I really love yeah, dumb please. ideas because then it makes me feel smart yeah right
1: exactly' <laughs> that's, that's, that's the word that's the what's why I live by lower the bar that way it's yeah. easier to so if I say it's dumb, it just needs to be a little bit above dumb to sound brilliant
2: that's, yeah
1: that's that's yeah. my motto I hear you <laughs> I was you know, so, so much of sustainability conversation, uh, especially about unsustainability, if we don't change, is what the world will look like in the future, right? The, the, the seas will rise by this much, and you know the weather will be like this, and you know it's like imagine a future which is horrible. And it made me think also of, in years past, how people would imagine a future through events like the World's Fair. okay? Mm. So you go to the World's Fair and it's like, this is the thing, the city of the future. The product of the future, it's like whatever, okay? Whatever the future. And I don't think that the World's Fair is any longer a thing, right? To imagine a future. But then I also think, well, malls are emptying in many places. Why couldn't we create an immersive experience around sustainability and unsustainability in mall spaces that have empty stores to create pop-up experiences around these issues to translate this topic in a way that's more accessible to people and then might get them to more materially imagine a future versus conceptually imagine a future. You know what I mean? Because so much of the world's fair stuff was like, you're materially walking through the city of the future, the home of the future, the car of the future. You're seeing it. And so much of sustainability talk is conceptual. What might happen if, and that's hard to land, right?
2: Yeah, it's, I'll tell you. Okay. So you just opened the door to this. This could be a whole other podcast series, but here's, here's, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I've, this is, I want to say it's my theory, but I think it's stronger than just my theory. Here's what, what you're talking about is can you find a catalyst for change in behavior? Because at the end of the day, that's the only way that we are going to save the planet is if we change our behavior. Now, here's the challenge. I read this book called Change or Die. And in the book, he has- What's it about? (laughs) Dying. (laughs) It's about dying. Okay. How's it end? Does he change or does he die? Don't ruin it for me. Well, I'm not going to give it away. (laughs) I'm not going to give it away. But I will tell you this. Nine out of 10 people cannot change- their habits, or their lifestyle because you have something called an ego defense. Now, I'll tell you a story, and I tell a lot of people this story, So, um, but I haven't told you guys this story yet, so it'll be new to you. I have a good friend of mine that was on a business trip in Mexico city. And he got mugged. And when he told me, um, about this, basically what happened was he was walking back to his hotel from dinner and somebody snuck up on him from behind, grabbed him in a bear hug, threw him down on the sidewalk, broke his shoulder and stole his wallet and his watch and whatever else they could grab and took off on him. And when he told me this story, he said, you know, when they grabbed me from behind, my initial reaction was to laugh because I thought it was a friend who had snuck up on me and Mm -hmm. was just grabbing me. I didn't think for a second that I was being mugged. And and that's your ego defense. And you're, listen, you may have heard this, but your ego is not your amigo, okay? And so your ego (laughs) defense is there to let you know that nothing bad will happen. And so in this book, Change or Die, he comes up with, a, he tells a great anecdote about a heart surgeon. Okay. So if you guys, if we went to a medical association conference back in the 1950s, okay, and then we, we, we got back in our time machine and we went to a medical association meeting today, they would be talking about the same three strains on our healthcare system. And I bet you guys can guess what they are because they haven't changed. Diet,
0: heart disease, exercise,
2: and smoking. Yeah. Okay. And the problem is that people can't change. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, listen, you are a prime candidate. You're a walking heart attack. I, I can't tell you how unhealthy you are. You overeat, you smoke, and you don't exercise. You're a perfect candidate for open heart surgery. So unless you want to have open heart surgery, you better change your lifestyle. So you're scared sitting in the doctor's office and you agree vehemently that you're going to change your lifestyle. So you go home and you tell your wife, um, nothing but salad for me from now on, I'm going to stop smoking cigarettes and I'm going to take the dog for a walk around the block. And that's my first start, but I'll be running five K's by the end of the month. And what happens is you adapt to that lifestyle for about a week. And then your ego defense kicks in and says, Hey, don't worry. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. That, doctor, that conversation with the doctor was a long time ago. And today, don't you feel good? Yeah, I feel good. So you go back to the cigarettes and the overeating and the no exercise because you know you also have technology on your side. If something bad happens, that doctor can give you open heart surgery and give you the stents and everything else that you need to get your heart cleaned up. So you kind of fall back on technology. And we're dangerously close to that point in the sustainability conversation because we think it's not going to happen in our lifetime. And now experts are saying, yeah, but it'll probably happen in your grandchildren's lifetime. And even that isn't quite enough to motivate a lot of people to change because what we need is we do need people to change, but you know, what's happening now, green technology, so now people are looking at green technology and saying, ah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to have to change because now we're going to have offshore wind turbines and solar, right? We're going to have all this green technology. I kind of feel like I'm going to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. And guess what? Planet's going to be just fine. Because, you know, we we all mm-hmm. grew up never talking about the planet. Nobody ever said the planet's in trouble. We, we could never even conceive that the planet would be in trouble except
1: for that one so, Native American guy who was really Italian He knew except
2: for chief iron eyes
1: yeah he knew he knew he knew
2: so that's my that's my my theory. that's why we're having such a hard time with sustainability is is that you know honestly I just read a stat the other day the top one percent emit as much carbon as the poorest fifty percent of the globe Wow. So, yeah, been. it's a challenge, man. It's a balance. It's a
1: balancing act.
2: I didn't say it. I said challenge. <laughs> I know. I just, wanted,
1: I just wanted people at home to drink.
2: Um, ah. <laughs> loosen up
1: because, you know, again, we don't know if the person changed or died, but it does seem that not only does the person who is smoking, exercising, not exercising and not uh, eating well, they are besieged by products which are made with high fructose corn syrup, right they are besieged mm-hmm. with besieged with things that are there to keep them comfortable at home and they are besieged with you know infotainment that promotes the activity that's harmful for them
2: gary think about it i you know to what we were talking about earlier the the climate movement is trying to engage these people to right. act but but what have we done to mitigate their experience or to moderate their experience right and, and, and that's, I think that's a, a huge disconnect.
1: Yeah, because people often mm. think about sacrifice as loss, I meaning the words, we need to sacrifice. Sacrifice equals loss. Well, I don't want to sacrifice more for something that doesn't seem immediate. Give me a little something to hold on to, right? Um, I'm tired mm. of sacrificing. And how does it get be reframed as not a sacrifice, but as something you gain? right? You're, I, I can't eat this anymore. I have to eat salad versus, oh, this is great news. I'm eating salad, right? so yeah. how do we reframe that? It becomes, yeah, I think, an interesting behavioral question in terms of changing behavior.
2: We, we really, you know, when we talk, when the association, when we look at sustainability, we, we look at it, we set it on three pillars, climate, health, and equity. And it is, you know, it's a holistic, issue meaning we don't really think you can solve it you can fix it or you can make it better if you just want to talk about climate day in and day out because a big part of this conversation is health right not not just health not not just our health but health of the animals that we share the space with Health of the plants, health of the ecosystems that we affect uh, with our buildings and our spaces, and then equity. And we know that social equity is very closely uh, tied into sustainability. And we know that those communities that are most disadvantaged and disenfranchised are first and most affected by our decisions um, that fail to address climate. And so that's what we we feel. Really strong about is when you talk about sustainability, when you try to resolve sustainability, you have to look at it through climate, through health, and through equity. I know
1: Adam has a question. But mm-hmm. I just want to ask him really quickly because it makes me think. Do you think today, and Adam, this is a question for you too. Do you think today that we could ban leaded gasoline? In you know, and you know, because growing up we had leaded gasoline, right? I mean, it, and lead's bad for children, the environment, people, everything else. And that's not debatable. That lead's bad. You can't have lead paint in your house, or if you do, you have to disclose that in your sale. Do you think today that if we said, you know what, we need to ban leaded gasoline, people would be like, ah, I don't know, seems seems fake to me. It's just, uh, you know, the big government coming in and trying to tell me I can't have my leaded gasoline. Screw you, right? I think yeah. it would be really hard.
2: It'd be impossible. Right. In this country where you know we're so devoted to our civil liberties, if you told me I couldn't have something, there would be a hundred people that would tell you, you can't tell him he can't have that. Listen, right. we, you want to ban leaded gasoline, we can't even ban assault weapons. So you know, that's, I'll tell you uh, uh, something that's kind of interesting when you think about leaded gasoline, right? The EPA, a lot of people look at the EPA like the FDA, and they're two very different mm-hmm organizations. So, and it's because of the burden of proof. When you look at the FDA, the burden of proof is on the manufacturer to prove to the FDA that what they're making for human consumption is safe, that nobody will be harmed by that. If you look at the EPA, the burden of proof is on the EPA. Okay. So if a chemical company, okay, so this is interesting. In 1976, we had our first Toxic Substance Control Act of 1976. And at that time, the EPA or the federal government basically said to the EPA, listen, we're using about 40,000 chemicals, the ingredients, the effects, uh, the processes we know nothing about. We're going to grandfather all those chemicals in. Okay, we're going to you have to make all of those things legal uh, for manufacture and for consumption in one way or another. Uh, But moving forward, we're going to let you evaluate the chemicals and the substances okay, that are introduced, um, but the burden of proof is on you. So that means mm-hmm. the EPA has to take that substance and before they ban it, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it's harmful. And so because of that, since 1976, do you have any idea how many chemicals we now surround ourselves with every day. The number has grown to over 86,000 chemicals. And do you know how many the EPA has banned?
0: Nope. Zero, two, five. Five.
2: A couple of plasticizers, lead paint. Okay. And they banned asbestos, but... It's not really banned because chemical companies came out and said you can't ban asbestos because we need asbestos in the manufacturing process of some of our product. And so that's where when we get when we start talking about toxic materials, that's how that is such an important conversation to have because exposure happens at so many different levels. So it happens we talked about social equity, disenfranchised communities. It happens in those fence line communities where people have to grow up next to a a chemical plant or an oil refinery, right? It happens within those plants and refineries, factory workers that have to go in and work with those toxic substances every day. Exposure happens with whoever installs the product or works with the product that has that chemical in it. And then exposure happens with anybody who's working or living in that space that's surrounded by product that has that chemical in it. So exposures are so... There's like five different exposure levels for, for toxic mm. ingredients. And and the ridiculous thing is that um, they talk about body burden. Have you heard that term, body burden? Body burden is... Mm. that is a reasonable amount of toxin that your body can absorb before you get sick. And so when scientists talk about um, chemical toxicity, they use body burden. And the sad thing is that nobody should dictate to you what your body burden is. You should have the option to say, I don't want to have any exposure to that. Mm -hmm. But instead there's a chemical company out there saying, well, listen, listen, your body can handle a certain amount of this, right? You can handle it. <laughs> you can handle. It. Don't worry. And it's it's that's where we are as a society, and it's really sad that we're so chemically comfortable, right? And this is a big part of sustainability because about ninety percent of the toxic chemicals that we produce in this country are petroleum-based. So, mm. and and that's the other thing is as we were so addicted to plastic right since the 1950s we started using it plastic consumption continues to rise and rise and rise and we know plastic is petroleum based so as we move towards electric vehicles right and that's a slow process i think we all know what the fossil fuel industry will do they will start to push us towards more plastic consumption so
1: if, if my body can Bear, bear more burden. Can I get a body burden credit that I can apply mm. to my taxes?
2: Well, you could like sell that credit then right. to other people who have lower thinking, yes. a little body debt. I'm thinking a market
1: based solution here might be like you while know, well, your body can really bear a lot of chemical burden, you can actually you know monetize that.
2: Yeah, and, you just basically you just gave the the elites an opportunity to buy out of the problem. You're so welcome. now you've made it a. That's
0: what we try to do in this podcast.
1: You're welcome. (laughs) I'm here. I'm here about the solutions.
2: You're all about the elites, man.
1: That's right. Anybody who knows a sociologist will tell you we very (laughs) often are about the elites.
2: But you you see how easy it is to tune this conversation out. Oh yeah. You see how easy it is to say, you know what? This is a, it's depressing. It's, it's, it's mentally debilitating, and how am I as one person uh, what am I going to do take on ExxonMobil am I going to take on Dow? am I going to take on BASF what come on uh, you know what I don't know what the answer is and and my our point at the association is your answer is your answer. you come up with your answer. no answer is too insignificant. Do something could hmm. be anything it you don't have to look at Greta Thunberg, right? You know, she was a young girl when she became an activist. And of course the opposition all said, what does she know? She's 12 years old or whatever. What does she know? Well, again, this movement, it needs leaders and followers and she's, you know, she's become a leader of the, of the movement. And that's, that's what you need. You know, it's, it's a daunting Hmm. conversation for sure. And we're, to go back to the association, we just want our members not to get frustrated with it and give up.
0: Hmm. I think that, that that's like a I think a really important value add, if I can use a nasty term. You know that that is is part of that. I think is is key because it's you're right. Like for for looking at massive problems and like the abstractness of the futureness of it, the idea of you know equity and environmental and racial justice is part of that conversation. Um, consumer wariness over greenwashing. Like a lot of that is like people just want to throw their hands up, you know? And so, I mean, yeah, one thing to tag on there that, that is really sticking with me too, is this idea of, um, you know, the EPA FDA conversation is tricky also because it's at a federal level. And it's like a lot of the activism and work we need is at the local and grassroots level too. Right. And so it's like, and right. also activating on, on those spaces. There's actually the other day I was walking in, in Arlington where I, where I live um, going to Arlington Center. And I saw this weird metal sign on a bus stop that I had not seen before. And I, I looked at it real quick and I kind of glanced at it and then I had to look back at it again. And, and, it, uh, and it said um, something like in 2029, um, free ticket to ride, like public transit is free for all reducing traffic and emissions. And there's a QR code now. Let me, let me see what this is. And it's Uh, Part of this, this art installation project in a number of cities in Massachusetts, that's um, called Climate Futures and climatefutures.us is the website. And they basically have worked with high school students in each of the cities and regional areas to then put up plaques around the city of like, basically, here's where we built a causeway in 2027 to help us move through some of the flooded areas. Or uh, like we we have new mental health curriculum for dealing with climate change, like in twenty thirty two. So these really interesting, like imagined futures of, of how we're doing it. So to, to, I mean, to, to bring Gary's question and, and you're, what you're talking about there too, in terms of how to not throw our hands up. One, I think, is activating around youth is is like fundamentally important because they are the ones that will have to uh, face it, you know, beyond us. Um, and then on top of that, uh, making concrete stories, right? And so this this to me really stuck with me because it was a literal metal metal plaque on a bus stop. In my city, you know, that pointed this out to me and said, then it really then raised my my thinking also of of yeah, what are the infrastructural elements around here, around town right now, that we could be aware of, that we could we can create that change. So I think even even that too. I mean, and one other piece just to add there is is with interior design also like the right kind of plants, right? Nature in in a space too also is fundamentally important. And like even if we're designing around a building too, of using native plants and pollinators, you know, versus golf grass. Um, you know, and like yeah. what we're putting around spaces. So I think both, both plants and, and, and young people, <laughs> two plants things that, that come to mind there and, in terms of doing And by the way,
2: it. you know, who else could help Hollywood?
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, we don't. Not, not just making the day after tomorrow.
2: You know, it's like we had that movie last year. What was it called? It came from above or whatever. Right. Um, don't look, look up. Oh, yeah. Don't look up. Don't look up. Yeah. Don't look up. Yeah. was the movie and it, it got a lot of critical acclaim. It was an awesome movie. Um, but Hollywood does not write climate change into enough of and, and listen, we're so affected and 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 influenced by Hollywood, by what we watch on our TVs. Just imagine if Hollywood started to say, let's really make climate change front and center. Let's show it, right let's let's show. Our stars, our main character. Let's show, let's show them caring and talking about it and doing things about it as a part of their everyday life. That would be awesome, right? Then, then the rest of us would say, "Wow, you know, uh, those everyday people that I'm watching on TV are doing little things. Uh, you know, they're picking some litter up off their beach or they're cleaning up a park, and it's a part of the storyline. It's not this episode is about beach cleanup. No, it's not. It's written into the everyday life of of a character. I think that would be that would be huge.
1: I'm gonna make a climate change haunted house for Halloween. That's what that's what Adam's idea gave to me. like what would that look like? <laughs> you know a climate change haunted house that people are walking through. I mean, going back to this idea of immersion into a mm-hmm. you know, future, right? It's kind of you know you think about VR environments or augmented reality environments, things to make it tangible. And the thing with Hollywood, even with like day after tomorrow or any of those is, it seems so enormous that it seems unreal versus, you know, if you talk to the Department of Defense, which I don't often, but if, if I did, they would tell me that uh, one of the greatest threats to global security is climate change, if not the greatest threat, because it's going to create regional instabilities and migrations of populations due to land that is not right inhabitable. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
1: You know, so it's, you know, these are very real things other than like, you know, a 70 foot wave, which is also a very real thing, but people have a hard time seeing that as real versus just CGI Hollywood. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's hard to imagine Dennis Quaid as a climate scientist. So that's, there's uh, there's that too, (laughs) I
2: guess. (laughs) True. (laughs) Who's counting, right? But Leonardo DiCaprio pulled it off.
1: That's true. That's true. What I really loved about the day after tomorrow, though, the one scene that I really liked is when um, Americans were trying to go across the border into Mexico and the Mexicans wouldn't let them. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, there we go.
2: There's a there little justice for you. There a you frontier go. Justice. <laughs> see,
1: see what's going on? <laughs> see what happened? Yeah, That's what you get. See, They just
2: flipped it on us. They yep.
1: flipped it. They broke some dishes. They uh, broke some dishes. You know, we should have been more balanced in our policy approach. Hey, see what I did there?
2: Little borderline <laughs> friction there going on. Little friction, a yeah. little uh, you little know, friction, unbalanced friction. Good thing.
1: So, what's like in this upcoming year? Like, what's what's on your agenda for the uh, for the organization and and your own work around trying to further and advance this conversation?
2: Well we are really focused I mean our goal uh, is to create a community within ASID where members and and designers will feel like let's let's be a part of this, let's figure it out together um, let's not be overwhelmed And so we sort of uh, from the association side of things we're focused on on three areas we're focused on knowledge and learning can we create and curate, a collection of of knowledge and learning materials that will help our members and guide them through this process of more sustainable design, right? Advocacy. Can we create, we've got, you know, 45 chapters across the U.S. Can we create advocacy in each of those chapters such that each chapter, whether you're the the the, the chapter in New England or the chapter in Northern California, you're, You're addressing sustainability and there's some consistency and stability in the way that you are addressing it. And I think it'll be interesting because, you know, the sustainability issues that Northern California chapter is trying to deal with would probably be very different than the sustainability issues that our Texas chapter would be dealing with, right? So it'll be interesting to see how we set up chapter advocacy, but we need to be able to have touch points across the country where the conversation is being supported. And then the the third area that we're really focused on is what we call design excellence. So anytime we recognize excellence in design, can we do it uh, using the language that includes sustainable design? So are we doing it with um, attention to diverse communities? Are we doing it with attention to um, reclaiming carbon emissions? Uh, Are we doing it with um, attention to uh, social equity? So community cohesion, all these things. So whenever we recognize excellent design are we recognizing it for what it does for the climate at the same time? So those are sort of like the three impact areas that we're most focused on right now.
1: Sounds like a pretty full agenda. Hmm.
2: Well, I, I'm is hoping that just it's this full-time job.
1: Is that just this week or is this like?
2: <laughs> I hope to have that done by, uh, by summertime so I can take Fridays <laughs> off.
1: Yeah, I want that on my desk by uh, end of day on Friday.
2: <laughs> done and dusted.
1: Yeah, yeah right. No problem. I don't make anything else. No,
0: nope. I think this is great. Uh, no, I'm 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 enthused and um full of a, a bunch of ideas now. Otherwise, we'll keep talking for seven hours. And I don't know if our listeners want that. I mean, they might, they might. There's the one listener that listened that will listen all day.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm still wondering <laughs> if the person changed or
2: died. I mean, I don't
1: know. It's I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm on the edge of my seat You're here. You're gonna you know? have to read yeah. the
2: book. Gary, you got to read the book. I'm, I'm not going to give it, read it away. read
1: anymore. Can you just you
2: me? wait for the movie. Wait
1: for okay, the movie. Okay, I'll wait for the movie. Yeah, yeah, that... the wave Who's going to star in that one? Who are we going to get? John Cusack, uh, Dennis Ooh, Quaid. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: John Leonardo. Cusack hasn't
2: been anything. It might be good. You know, maybe
1: you he'd, know, he'd, he'd, he's a Everybody loves
2: movie. Keanu Reeves, so maybe we Keanu should Reeves have him in this too, you know?
1: Yeah, Keanu Reeves yeah. would be a good one for, uh, you know, we're only talking about male ones, which shows our patriarchal bias here. We can think about, <laughs> see what I did there? Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. can talk about what female leads would be responsible for this as well.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, are they going to die at the end? That's, that's, that's probably going to be a big factor.
1: That might be another one. Like, you know, besides uh, Chief Iron Eyes, which, uh, which Hollywood actor would be like, most likely to see die at the end of the film?
2: Hmm. Yeah. A, a, uh, new episode
1: of the podcast.
2: Somebody just Dean, was not able to change.
1: Right. Not able to change. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, John, for the conversation. This was yeah, uh this was great. And I am uh, at the same time encouraged and uh saddened <laughs>
2: by what the future might hold. <laughs> so
1: it's very balanced. It's a very balanced <laughs> always, outcome.
2: I'm always happy to keep you sadly encouraged. That's yeah. that's great. I you know, that's <laughs> is that is that does that just mean you're realistic?
1: <laughs> always. My realism oh, oh, oh. is is uh, framed by my pessimism, based on my uh, my my past experiences. You know, so, my the fantastic. other
2: phrase that is my pet peeve that I find we use way too often, and it's kind of a cop out. On it's a communications cop out. Is it is what it is. <laughs> you guys hear that? Mm. I feel like I hear that more and more yeah. now. And you kind of say it when you don't know what else to say, right? Well, it is what it is. Well, thanks for that. That was very useful.
1: Yeah. Well, we will not name the episode. It is what it is with John That
2: That actually could be a great name. It is what it is. (laughs) Thanks, John. Hey, thanks, guys. I I enjoyed it. This was great.
0: We would like to thank John Strassner and the Breaking Dishes podcast for talking to us about his work and vision. You can find more about what he does and links to it in our show notes. And as always, we want to hear with you. So hop in conversation with us and think about these questions for today's episode. In what ways do you consider environmental factors in sustainability in your designs? Or do you? And if you don't, why not? How has your organization dealt with trying to create sustainable interior designs or designs of different spaces? And... Most importantly, what features would you want in a climate change haunted house? Hmm. That doesn't sound scary. I don't know what does. You can send us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or jump in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And in case you don't know, you should definitely subscribe to our newsletter over on Substack. We'll have that link in the show notes. We are extending the conversations from audio into text because people like both kinds and so do we. So hope you enjoy us and will join us there as well.
1: And as always, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far in the podcast, you listened to the whole thing. So give yourself a big pat on the back and a hearty congratulations. As we always like to say, experience design is a ever in growing field with lots of people doing lots of interesting things. And we're happy to occupy a small part of that growing profession. We love bringing you this content, love talking to our guests, love sharing what they do with you to hopefully impact your own work and your own experiences. If you're an experienced design company or professional looking to increase your profile, reach out to us to talk about sponsoring an episode, appearing on an episode, or sharing your ideas about future episodes. And as always, you can also support and show your appreciation by buying us a coffee through our Buy Us A Coffee link at our experiencexdesign.com website. Be sure to share your feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And as Adam said, subscribe to the Substack, subscribe to the podcast, and be part of the community so we can keep you up to date on all the experience by design happenings. So with that, folks, as always, be safe, be kind, be well, and please be here for the next experience by design.